Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Friends, listeners, glad to have you back with us today. If you're new to the program, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. If you're a regular listener, thanks for showing up again. It means a lot. I really appreciate the support to be able to share my passions and have listeners who resonate with them. Everyone is invited to keep this a listener-sponsored podcast. Details about how you can contribute are at the end of this show and at my website, howhumanswork.us. Today's episode is very explicit in its discussion of sex, sex acts, and sexual relationships. If there is young ears around, I would highly recommend considering doing this on headphones or in a more private moment. Also, if you are uncomfortable with deep discussions around human sexuality that fall outside traditional models of marriage between a man and a woman, this show is probably not the one for you unless you're really looking to explore and open your mind a great deal. With all that fanfare out of the way now, let me introduce today's guest on the show, Dossie Easton. She, among other things, is the co-author of The Ethical Slut, as well as four other books on sex, BDSM, and relationships. As a pioneer in the world of polyamory, she renders a very fascinating and mirthful account, as you'll hear, of her hard-earned wisdom about navigating the dynamics of non-traditional relationships, particularly with the ethics of sluthood, as she calls it. Dossie is also a psychotherapist and a very accomplished poet. As an ethical slut for more than 50 years, Dossie has a wealth of experience and wisdom to share. We had a wide-ranging conversation across nearly two hours, delving into an array of lessons and issues which are connected to non-monogamy and polyamory. It really is one of the most interesting and joyful conversations I've had to date on the podcast. I hope you'll find it as thought-provoking and meaningful as I did. Dossie, it was a pleasure to interview you. Thank you so much. Without further ado, An Ethical Slut, Sex, Freedom, and Destiny. That started in 69 with this, I think I might have taken a thousand mics of acid. Somebody popped into my house at like nine in the morning, ungodly hour, saying, look, sugar cube acid, haven't seen this in a really long time. And uh, since acid has no taste and almost everything else does, and, and the idea of sucking a candy in your mouth made it come in to your system very quickly, it... Uh, it was a particularly nice way. And for some reason, I was very conservative about these things. I was very conservative about these things once upon a time. It was, it was a totally strange, impetuous thing. I usually planned trips, and it was a big deal, and set and setting and all that. And um, I don't know. It was the right moment. And I said, can I take two? And I did. <laughs> I arranged babysitting for the baby, and I took two. And... Uh, I went on a journey, and uh, uh, the journey itself was very metaphysical, and I guess not to the point here, but uh, as I was coming back to the planet, um, uh, literally, I actually was um, 
envisioning coming back to the planet at night and these kind of circles around a fire and people telling stories in the darkness uh, and getting safe with each other. And it was really kind of beautiful. It was like, okay, so our social reality is what we create, is what we make collectively. In the situations we are in, we do it because sometimes it's scary at night. And it occurred to me, uh, among many other things, that I had never really looked at. This was in 1969. And uh, I had never really looked at my life from the point of view of being a woman and from the point of view of what I thought I was supposed to do to be a good woman, right? I had already, I was already a rebel. I'd already done all kinds of things, as you can tell from the psychedelics. But um, the idea that that I had, that I wasn't supposed to be too smart, for instance, uh, that I wasn't supposed to have a destiny of my own. I was supposed to somehow want to settle down into wanting to be a homemaker. A homemaker is something I respect, but it's, it wasn't, I needed the freedom to seek my own destiny. And I needed the freedom to think of myself in that way and to think of my relationships and sex. Uh, Cause I realized that day that sexuality was my path that it was very important to me uh, to have the freedom to explore, to find out what it was. Why is it like this? Why are the rules like that? What am, you know, why is there a lot of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do? And then what is this incredible, exquisitely beautiful experience that we get to share in sex? And why do we think it's dangerous? <laughs> that's the thing that really gets to me. It was like, what, everybody's got all this, oh my God, you can't do that, you can't do this, it's, ugh, God doesn't like it, um, whatever, right? And I'm like, but wait a minute. This is beautiful. We can share it. All we really need to do is to be thoughtful and kind with each other. That's really all that's called for, reasonable precautions about safer sex, whatever, right? But it's not like some big like like some terrible, you know, it's going to ruin your life or turn you into somebody else. Um, and if you try some form of sex and it turns out you don't like it, well, don't do it again. <laughs> you don't fall off the edge of the planet, you know. It's just like if you have an experience that is less than optimal. And I'm not talking about abuse. There is massive abuse. And, yeah. Uh, so I'm running a class, but that's kind of almost way down the track from here. Yeah. From where you began. So this, you, the, when you had that journey on the very high dose of LSD, what year was that? 1969. Okay. Great year. They say, huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it yeah, was yeah. a good year. The sixties were great. I'm sorry yeah. you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm 71. So I really missed it, uh, but it's okay. Um, uh, I'm, I think I'm in the right time. I hope I am. So first of all, welcome to the show. Yep, thank you. Dossie Easton, it's so nice to have you here and for this conversation. We're here in your lovely home in the, the hills and trees of Lagunitas, California. Mm -hmm. So thank you for welcoming me here. Uh huh. And I really appreciate it because I, I, when I started reading your book and I was really curious about some things, one of the things I was really curious about is this origin story. And I just like to kind of follow with the condition of the origin story where, where you had this insight about wanting a different path than you had had in, in terms of how you understood your sexuality. Mm -hmm. So, so 
you knew that that just came to you. It just kind of was like part of the awakening of the medicine that you went on. Yeah, I had I had been exploring before and doing sort of serial monogamy. And in between serial monogamy, I was a slut. And um, I always thought I would settle down. And I began to realize that that identity was more me than was settling down. Uh, and that I didn't really have to settle down. Per se. I mean, having a kid was grounding for me and I needed that. That was great. And uh, actually raising a child was one of the most marvelous experiences of my life. I wouldn't trade it in for anything. It's a lot of work, but you know, it's pretty wonderful. You're doing it. You know that. I do. The magic is there. You walk in the room and they smile at you and it's all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then they do whatever horrible thing yeah. they do next. Yeah. 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 Kids. Uh, but the, 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 uh, the choosing my own identity, I had decided that day that I would not be partnered for five years, that if I was going to find out, because I needed to find out what kind of a person I was going to be if I was a person first and a woman second. It was really important to me um, to say, who am I going to be if I'm really free to do what I want or what I choose? What choices would I make uh, if I'm not trying to turn myself into somebody's wife? And so I did, I stayed, um, and then I, I realized uh, that this was another part of the picture, that I needed to think about how I was going to get intimacy and connection then into my life, much less sex. And uh, so I, it's funny, I had a couple of roommates back then, and they were very enthusiastic people one day. They saw me doing a drawing on, at my desk, and they liked it. They grabbed the drawing and went to two houses around. There were three communes in a row right back then and uh, uh, showed everybody, look what Dossie did. And I'm like, what? And then I, I realized that day that for some reason appreciating things was embarrassing in some strange way. I came from New York. Maybe it was New Yorkism. but um, So I decided that the answer to creating intimacy without getting on the sort of um, roller coaster to marriage or coupling or whatever, um, mm -hmm. that would be to be really appreciative, to be affectionate, to take those risks, to be appreciative. Because why should those things be a risk? There's really no reason why being affectionate to somebody you don't know very well or, or being appreciative of something they do that you like is a risk. Why would we think of that way? That's what I started doing. And it kind of put, you know, and, and we were the love generation. It was lots of fun. Yeah, there was and, a lot of permission and advocacy at that time to explore. Yeah, right. And I wound up with, and they were also a lot of other post-Summer of Love single mothers, believe me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I banded together with a few other single moms who had the same, who liked the same ideas I did. And, mm -hmm. um, and we started forming, we had a household called Liberated Ladies at Large. Ooh. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, we were all single mothers and, you know, yeah. we, we, we had a big Victorian flat in San Francisco and yeah. uh, we had fun. We used to have, um, we used to have brunches and we would invite everybody. And it was really interesting because people would come in and they were lovers with one of us, maybe more than one sometimes. And, uh, but they didn't know who else was lovers with who. And we're having a nice potluck brunch, right? Everybody's chatting around, getting to know each other. A lot of them are friendly to each other. They find people they like, which is for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, it kind of 
broke up all that stuff about jealousy and competition and stuff. We would have brunch together. People would bake something, you know, be proud of it or whatever. Yeah. And I remember one of those guys showing up in the house one time saying, "Uh, you ladies never get to go out and dance by yourselves because somebody has to always stay home with the babies. So I'm staying home with the babies tonight. You guys go out and play. And that was like, you know, that was the kind of thing that's inspired, you know? Yeah, like a kind of sensitivity to things and and one of the things I'm, I'm I kind of heard in the sensitivity to is uh, is like like were you surprised that the jealousy was kind of um diffused were you expecting more uh conflict having everybody over for brunches or had that stuff already been settled um At the time, I was amused to call myself the bitch who wears no man's collar. <laughs> uh, that was amusing, but um, th- yeah, that was also powerful silly, too, but, and you know, silly and fun. And sure, fun, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so nobody, in terms of me, anyway, uh, everybody they 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 used to joke that I should put my little feminist thing in my my thing about free sexuality. We should have a tape recorder at the top of the stairs and play it for anyone coming in the house. <laughs> but. Uh, so, but I mean, why, why would you, why would you play it for anybody to come in the house? Just so, so that they would know what to expect. Yeah. Just, set the tone, right. right. Where you're coming from. And yeah. was that you that had that really strong self-determination around your sexuality and feminism or was it shared in the whole house? Well, it was shared with everybody in the house. I was, um, I was the person who went on to write books and become a, a an educator and a therapist and all that kind of stuff. So the dynamics of it, the philosophy behind it, the ways of looking at things, how to, uh, Ask those questions, but why do we have a rule again? Why do we think masturbation is shameful? You know, where did that come from? Um, there is a history to that, by the Of course the way. there is, yeah, yeah. That's somewhere around 1780-something. Okay. But, uh, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was me who was curious about that and read everything I could get my hands on, which was very little back then mm-hmm. and not very good back then, I fear. Yeah. But in the 70s, people started publishing, some really good people started publishing good research about sexuality, and we started getting... See, I think that's the biggest problem that comes up, is that it's so against the rules to talk about sex. And we've gotten much better at it. We've had to develop language, sex-positive language, to somehow talk about it. For example, what was one of the things that would, you know, you didn't have language for that was developed and now would be part of the sex positive story. I think I, I, I think of 1973 as the year of the discovery of the clitoris. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and the clit was like, uh, and giving it an informal name like clit was part of the story. You yeah. know, it was like, okay, there are these women's organs. At that time, a woman named Mary Jane Shurfee, who was a researcher and a pathologist, uh, published some of the first dissections. There were no dissections of a clitoris in Gray's anatomy. Until 1973? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, think about that for a minute. (laughs) It's the only organ that has no purpose other than sexual pleasure. It's telling, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. It's a very important organ. It's got a unique job to do. Yeah. And so... So things like... Learning about the clit, having that put on the radar, discussing it, yep. having that come into popular conversation or maybe subculture conversation. Yeah. And so then we get a differentiation in language. Then we figure out, do we want to use vagina or do we want to use cunt? Yeah. Do we care? Does yeah. it matter? Why does it matter? That's interesting. Chaucer wrote about, he spelled it quaint. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I looked up the etymology one time, and I think it's Middle French, and it's cante, and it means used to mean cradle. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that I amazing? I didn't know that one. I like that. Thank <laughs> I'm you. like, oh, so people are calling each other cradles, or like, where did cradles suddenly become a, an epithet? Uh, yeah, that was something I figured out when I was 17. How can yeah. a word be dirty? Give me a break. And I wasn't even aware of what was happening with Lenny Bruce and all that kind of stuff. It happened a little bit later. Mm-hmm. It was just like, what is this business about dirty words? Yeah. Why are we not supposed to say that? And I think... You know, we have so many words about intercourse that are problematic. They're getting laid, getting lucky, getting some nookie, uh-huh. getting something, getting, getting, getting. It's almost like yeah. a consumer, you know. In a way, fuck is the only active verb if you don't count screw, which is particularly ugly. Uh-huh. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, so it's, it's the only verb that says that we're actually doing something together with somebody. And both people are being fucked usually. Yeah, both yep, people are fucking direction. and getting fucked. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> both of them, both ways. Yes. So, so there's s- no obvious um, active and receptive. There can be active and receptive roles there. Those are fun to play with, but um, it's not preordained. So in 73, this is the year where there's maybe a, a, a jump in the social awareness in some communities around human sexuality and starting to talk about things. Yeah, Masters and Johnson are publishing Lonnie Barback writes uh, For Yourself, the first book about female orgasm and the clitoris, published in 74. Ernie Zilbergeld writes um, Men's Sexuality, which is still in print. Both of those books are still in print. Okay. Um, uh, Lonnie Barback did the radical thing of dealing with the problem of why women don't have orgasms or why women may have problems with orgasms by teaching women how to masturbate. It worked. It really worked. Uh, There is a, this story may be apocryphal because I heard it from some researchers, but they said that uh, when Masters and Johnson wrote Human Sexual Response, which was published in 67, they had something like 700, 600 and something, 670 something couples who were, had a happy sex life, which by which they meant that they had sex a couple times a week and um, that they had both had orgasms during unaugmented penis-vagina intercourse. That was the definition of healthy sex back then. Uh, and they were very surprised to find out that all these successful people in these successful marriages with having these successful sex lives by their rather rigid definitions also masturbated. Not only that, but when the women masturbated, guess what they did? <laughs> Why, they rubbed their clitorises. <laughs> Golly, <laughs> this is a revelation to everybody. You know, since Freud said that was um, women being phallic, trying to be phallic, they were trying to usurp male roles. Yeah. Uh, if they put tension on that clitoris, it was a phallic thing. So you really came of age in a time of distortion and ignorance in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. You know, right. I yeah. lived in a very ignorant time. I, yeah. I grew up into a very ignorant time. Sexually speaking, yeah. especially. Yeah. So this information's coming out in the 70s and you're living your life and you made this five-year commitment and what's happening on the personal side of the journey as you get more and more, yeah, just language, permission, understanding. Sorry. It's great. I'm say that again. Um, just what's happening on the personal side of life is, you know, language is coming along, research is coming along, you're making your five-year commitment journey of uh, not being committed to anybody. It's an interesting piece of language you just used, not being committed. I was not going to partner with anybody. Mm. I was not going to become a couple, but that doesn't mean I didn't make commitments to the people I shared intimacy with. 
Yeah, tell me about those commitments. Well, it's being honest, to mm-hmm. being um, being there pr- presumably for some time in the future. I rapidly learned that um, I didn't have very good self-esteem when I started out with this. I was kind of a misfit in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so finding myself was, was a challenge. Um, and I originally didn't think that people would get possessive or whatever because I didn't really think I was worth that much. So that was my first, my first run of jealousy was like, what? <laughs> How could somebody think of me as something that they wanted to, as turf? You know, I didn't like being thought of as turf for sure. And, uh, uh, but as something precious that they wanted to keep, I didn't see myself like that. So some of it was just my self-esteem started building. And I realized that I needed to build a base of security uh, in myself and in my own self-worth that was not contingent on a partner. Because, see, for women, it's a little different for men um, in that um, we're supposed to get, and still to some extent are, are, a lot of times our status is dependent on the status of our male partners, and um, that was certainly true at the time that I was thinking about all this stuff and this was stuff was new to me. And so to have a status of my own, to occupy my own space, right, yeah. was a big deal. Yeah. And at the same time, the people who partnered with me then were precious to me and we did marvelous stuff together. I had a great time and I had marvelous lovers and we, mm-hmm. uh, we, Actually, I had been dating one person a lot by the time the five years were up and we officially announced our coupledom. Okay. And we tried to live together. We lived together for six months. It did not work. We were great sexual partners. And so after about a year of mourning that, we wound up playing for nine more years. We would date about once a month, depending on who had fallen in love with who recently and um, for a long time. Well, that's an amazing um, tale in itself in terms of a a journey or a life cycle of what a relationship can look like. And in reading your book, The Ethical Slut, which you co-authored with Janet Hardy. Right. One of the things that I did notice is that there is a lot of advocacy for a lot of variations and kinds of relationship and relationship stories. And so I really appreciate that. And I imagine we'll get to that more. Um, But I want to get back to this other more subtle point I think you were making, which is that having lovers helped you develop in some way. And that was a really strong impression I, I got out of reading the book and that, that the values that are required to be in commitment of whatever kind are really good for human development, even if they don't fit the model of pair bonding. So I want to, I just want to see if that's what I was hearing that like the journey through various lovers that you had at that time in your life was influential and for you developing your sense of self as a human in a way. Is that what I'm hearing? I can loosely call it feminism. Well, certainly my journey was not typical feminist as feminism is written about all the time. There's certainly lots of people who have gone on sexual journeys and as feminists. Um, and I have met many of them. Could you repeat the question? I've lost it. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes my language is, uh, no, I mean, I'm complicated. 78 so. years old. I forget <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just asking about that time because you were mentioning that you were working with self-esteem and you were surprised that there could be jealousy around you and that lovers were in your life at that time. And I heard you um, combining that bit of information with how I perceived a theme in the book. Yeah, I which guess. Which is oh, sorry. that 
conscious sexuality helps human development. Yes. Conscious is the important word here. I think that's really important. We're kind of taught that we're supposed to do what comes naturally. We're supposed to get swept away. Uh, We're supposed to, I don't know, something comes along, some big wave comes along. Passion is supposed to turn us into something else. And, you know, it's all like not something that we do or that we choose to do consciously, but something that happens and kind of carries us off. And that's a fun fantasy. I act that one out all the time. I like it. One of the things I wanted to respond to what your question was with a story, if I may, there was where I lived in the 70s, in the early 70s, was around the corner from a uh, a single safari, and they were very new then. It was called Dusty Roads. And I used to go there, and I had another friend who lived in the neighborhood, and we would do experiments, social experiments. I found that if I sat at the bar and got myself a drink... And, um, and if I said no thank you to the first guy who came up and offered to buy me a drink and the second guy and the third guy and the fourth guy and so on, they would increase in visible status. They would be more attractive. Their clothing would be more expensive. They'd be wearing better turquoise and silver. Uh, uh-huh. It was really <laughs> impressive to watch. Uh-huh. It was like, you know, gee whiz, they were not as drunk. Um <laughs> like oh and then sometimes one of the experiments i used to do is i would look around and i would see somebody uh, somebody who wasn't bothering anybody and ask that person to dance and possibly if i liked them we would go home and 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 have sex and you know have a good time it didn't occur to me that this is especially to some shy person who's hanging out in the corner of the room that this is an extraordinary experience in their life And if I didn't want to continue that relationship with them, that was painful and difficult for them. I hadn't anticipated that at all. And so when I figured that out, I became a little bit more cautious about making sure that basically I didn't want to take anybody home that I wasn't at least theoretically willing to to see again on into the future. I, I wasn't going to just have someone be an experiment to see how things came out. That was not a good thing to do. My friend once decided to test the fantasy, she went into the same bar and she was reading a book and a guy came up to her that seemed to be suitable and, you know, met her standards and so on and politely said, can I get you a drink? And she said, no, but would you like to go back to my place and fuck? The poor man choked on the ice in his drink. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> so there was the experiment in the great fantasy that somebody will just come along and want to play with me, right? You right. Know? I yeah, was like, totally. Whoa. And she felt very bad for him. It took him a long time to recover. They did they did date eventually, but it was very difficult and complicated and she just felt like she had done something wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, by being so bold. By being so bold and by um I guess by offering something to a perfect stranger that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I mean, I've done something close to that that was a little bit, had a little bit more connection in it. You know, Mm -hmm. I once, there was a guy nobody knew, really attractive guy at this place in North Beach and nobody knew who he was, where he came from, anything about him. So when I was leaving the bar one night, I walked up to him and just tucked a matchbook with my phone number in, in his pocket and left. This is powerful stuff to do. I've only done it the once, but I want to tell you, no, I did it another time too, actually. That's true. That one wasn't as much fun. Uh, he was a lot of fun. He was nice. But so, but there, then there was next thing happened. We talked on the phone, we got together, you know, mm-hmm. 
we got to know each other a little bit before we made any any commitments to physical intimacy. That gets into the ethical side, the first story about the, for someone who's very shy, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And so the development of the ethical understanding of the lessons that, that comes along through exploration. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I think that's worth noting um, because when I read your book, one of my first impressions was like, well, okay, wow, this is a really, this feels like a belief system. And this is like, there's permission and sexuality is good. And in a way I was coming into this interview, really thinking about putting the sex act in the middle of our conversation and then building all the layers. Cause there's so many layers that come along mm-hmm. and rules and agreements and, and that come along with the capacity and the desire to be sexual as a human. Right. So I was had this really strong impression about the belief in, in the, the the belief of, of freedom and how kind of like liberating that felt and then how kind of challenging it is and kind of just watching myself and echolocating my own uh, journey with my human sexuality and my my sexual experience and and then surprised me to some level was the book moved away from pure belief in towards this uh, sex positive point of view that pleasure is essential. Why do we have all these fucked up rules around pleasure? What, what's going on here? Yeah. And in your story around this ethical moment where you started to realize, or the man choking on the ice cube, that there's a journey we're all making in terms of like where we're set and like how quickly people can get to points of more expansive sexuality and having sensitivity for that, right? Like there's a there's an ethical requirement that comes along with the shy person or the, um, the, the straight up proposition mm-hmm. that somebody might not be prepared for, even though they may have been fantasizing about it their entire life, right? <laughs> that moment and, and then not know what to do. Right. So hilarious, but also that shows that that other imprint is so deep and it kind of, it needs a sensitivity, the, the exposure to the sex negative or the confusion or the limit or the heavy rules or the, the taboo and all the things that are for a lot of people, part of their, their story around sexuality. And so I was just tying all those together with, and wanted to also give praise for the way I really love the ethical side in relationship to the sluthood, as you call it, or the, the pleasure seeking drive and giving permission and liberation for that, that, that the ethics that I found later in the book and just how powerful those ethics are. Um, and I guess maybe we're 20 years ahead now and or so when you start getting to the book, but how powerful those ethics are in terms of being a good human, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just, I don't know why I'm, I'm going with this layer, but I'm just going to put that back to you and see how that lands for you. Well, you know, it's very interesting. One time I was, I, I joined a group, by the way, in 73 called San Francisco Sex Information. It still exists. You can call up or email now. They have a website. Um and ask any question you want, and a trained volunteer will talk with you. Just and about sex. About sex. Uh, their, our motto is sexual ignorance is not bliss. <laughs> Very simple. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so that was place where I had uh, became formally trained and started getting to work with other people and other and people who were already professionals in the field and so on. It was wonderful. Really wonderful. So, and I had found kind of a home for me. Previously, I had been doing this, but I was kind of on my own. Mm-hmm. And so this was wonderful to me. And I was explaining about the importance of San Francisco sex information to Scoop Nisker, actually. It yeah, was, Scoop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It was, oh, I was at KTIM with Scoop Nisker the night Nixon resigned. 
all of the people doing the sound collages, the news collages, the crazy satiric news collages, were, were doing his resignation speech. I am not a criminal was the favorite line. You would have loved to be there. I was hysterical. <laughs> what a moment. But I wound up, we wound up talking a little bit about San Francisco sex information when he was satisfied with what he was putting together and it went out on the air. And he said something amazing. He said, yeah, we all just declared that we were sexually free in the 60s, but nobody said a word about how we were going to get there and how we were going to do that. And yeah. so that's a lot of what inspired the book inspired San Francisco sex information. It was like, okay, so there, here's a vision. Why are we so unfree about sex? Why are we so fraught with taboos and shame and oddities? And then the other side of that coin is, what can we do about that? What is going to work to do something different? And I talked about a couple stories where we tried something that did not work. Definitely, definitely not worth repeating. Uh, but we we uh, we learned, and um, I don't think anybody fell off the edge of the planet. And uh, you know, and we started finding new ways to do this, and new ways to meet each other. There is a the sex positive movement. I hear people are associating that with the fact that our communities are so big now that people who don't belong in them can find them. And that includes people who have a pretty abusive or predatory approach to sex, mm -hmm. which is very sad. We have to constantly be on, um, we can create a beautiful place for people to be free. And then we have to constantly watch who we let in the door. <sighs> Wish it wasn't like that. Hope, yeah. Hope but, the that day will come. but that does happen. Yep. It does happen. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, literally the people who run sex parties have to, they watch out and they see a guy go get a drink and bring it to a girl and she gets all floppy and they, somebody takes care of the young woman or old woman or whoever she is. And somebody escorts the other guy very unkindly out the door, but people do come in with date rape drugs and stuff like that. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. And, uh, and they spoil it for everybody who wants to do it well. There's a reason why the title of the book is the title of the book, why it's called The Ethical Slut. Because for so many people, that is an oxymoron, and yeah. it is really the truth. It's saying, how do we go about freeing ourselves sexually and mm -hmm. in an ethical way? How, how do we do that? Well, I think most of it is is kind of figuring out what works in terms of, you know, there's no rules that apply to everybody. I'm careful about the fact that I have a lot more experience than many people do. And uh, uh, when I was younger, that was also true. And I had to be careful not to, um, not to open the doors to where that would be a huge power imbalance. I mean, it's not unlike being in the dojo and having a master work with an apprentice and they yeah. have to be mindful of what they know and what the other person doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. Now there are ways that it is wonderful to learn for other from other people. It is really marvelous. I love it when I run into people who know things I don't know, and then I get to learn things, and it's great, and I feel very good about it. But one needs to be thoughtful about those things. Differences in social power, differences in uh, feelings of safety in the mm -hmm. world, and so on. And then just plain, you know, what if you never have heard of a clitoris? What if... Um, what if you grew up in a church that had you take vows of chastity till marriage? How are you going to, how is that person going to respond to a sex positive world? Some people dive in and they just like it and it's easy. It's what they've always been waiting for. 
But other people have to go through a very difficult journey sometimes to claim themselves. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic. I know that. So that's part of the ethics. Part of it is just saying, okay, you know, I'm here to, you know, make my connections with other people and be kindly, I hope. Mm-hmm. And I can get irked at things like anybody else. It's not like I never think of a, a, an angry thought or something. Um, but uh, to be responsible for my actions and to be willing to... I think the other thing about our concept, a lot of people have a concept that a sexuality with people that you don't intend to marry or something like that, or get coupled with sexuality with people that you don't know very well, sexuality entered into much more lightly than many people would have it, is somehow free of emotion or intimacy, which it isn't. And is... Um, In some ways, there's actually a higher requirement for emotional intelligence to be... In that space. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're connecting with people you don't know how like or unlike you they are, what their life experience has been. Mm-hmm. So you have no idea what what to expect, what's going to be, you know, we open up this realm of new possibilities. I can't assume that somebody else is comfortable with a new possibility on my list of things I love. You know, I have to find out, so I have to talk to them. Yeah. Ah. which is one of the things that I would say just spending the time getting ready for the show is, is the way the shadow aspects or the painful aspects of sexuality get thrown at people who are pleasure seeking um, or in the ethical slut spirit that, that that kind of gets laid on that side, almost like uh, Western medicine sometimes will say, uh, you know, alternative medicine can do so much harm, you know, and, and without really seeing how much that there can be actual harm in the Western medical practices yeah, right. as well. Uh-huh. So, so there is, there is this way in which that like, well, I think about the alternative, right. Of, of like not communication or cheating or when, when sex gets really unhealthy, it is so harmful, even if it's in a, a straight head monogamous dimension or so-called dimension that the, the, the toxicity there is actually a lot more painful with the secrets, the betrayal, the deception Mm -hmm. than the consciousness involved with an empowered and sexual liberation. And I also just want, one thing I did want to really note that I thought was notable in the book too, that you and Janet write is that sexual freedom requires freedom from sexism and rape. I think everybody mostly knows the rape side of it, but what do you think of like the sexism? Like what's freedom from sexism mean for you in terms of how that's important for sexual liberation? Wow, it's huge. It's enormous. Let's go there. Uh, because we have looked at a, a, a notion of gender, that there are only two genders, which is not true. Um, and that boys will be boys and girls will be girls. There are things that you're supposed to want to do. Boys are not supposed to play with dolls. Girls are not supposed to want to play with trucks. You know, it's... Uh, there's a lot of oddities that are just sort of like saying uh, that viva la différence means that we should be different from each other and never do the same things, mm-hmm. never fit together in any way. I have a friend who is, um, who grew up female and is now male, but who while in the female body or while identifying as female became the goalie for the um, America's field hockey team the only non-male person in it because she was that good at a, goal, a goalie. When there was a protest that she was going to play, this is in the international competitions of field hockey, uh, the team said, we won't play without her. 
she's our goalie and she's good at it. Uh, so, you know, so there's th- things that it's forbidden to be good at. Uh, the, just even getting funding for women in sports is huge. But the, in sex, this idea is that the active and receptive roles, and I refuse to call them passive, I think the receptive, receptive role has its own uh, contributes in its absolutely, own way. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And that, that one of those should be exclusively male and one should be exclusively female. Now, in the first place, there's a whole bunch of people making a living out there saying, oh, bullshit, because that's what really an enormous percentage of sex work is based on, that uh, men can go somewhere where they're not supposed to constantly run the show. That's the big plus. That's what's worth it. Uh Uh, That's one of the most, the most common themes in all of sex work uh-huh. everywhere. So you're saying that there's a hidden desire in men not to be in charge in this, in, in a way, is that what you're saying? Something like that? And all of us need to relax and get done to, I think. <laughs> I mean, Amen. why should men be prevented from doing that for yeah. receiving? Yeah. Yeah. You know? No. Yeah. Why should, why, why should women be prevented being active? That's one part. And yeah, but it's the unnoted story that's inside sex work. Yeah. That, yeah. that there's actually a desire for receptivity in men, male yeah, identified, yeah. yeah. Everybody, in yeah. everybody. In everybody, yeah. Not male identified or female or whatever, yeah. or non-binary. Yeah. We all like to, it's sort of like receiving a massage, you know, only better. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing you had said before a long time ago was that the thing to remember about sex is that it is intimate, even if you're trying not to make it intimate. And if people are doing one night stands out of singles bars... You can do that with intimacy. You can regard that as a relationship of sorts. Even if it makes no commitments for the future, you can say, I'll get close, but you open yourself up like that, then sexual abuse, anything rapey, anything non-consensual, anything um, one up over one down kind of stuff becomes much more tender and much more painful and much more problematic, much more harmful. And that's one of the things we're hearing about with the Me Too movement and and people speaking about the various things that have happened to them, Um, women and men. I was surprised how many young gay men get dosed when they're like 14. It's really bad. It's really bad. For me, you had asked if sexism was at the root, and I had lived communally with, as I said, a bunch of single mothers, and then I wound up living in communally with gay men for about 15 years while I was raising my kid. And uh, that was wonderful. In the straight world, everybody knew how I ought to be as a woman. In the dyke world, everybody knew how I ought to be as a woman. Um, And in the gay world, nobody gave a shit. I could be whoever I wanted to be, and they probably would like it. Um, so that was a place where I had tremendous freedom and tremendous support. Mm-hmm. And then the, the gay male community had a, they became my role models in what a freed sexuality would look like. The first time I went to a party and saw two men uh, connecting and getting it on, I realized that I had not seen sex between people, two people who saw themselves as of equal power ever before. Uh-huh. I was seeing something quite miraculous. And what year was that that you kind of uh, had that moment? That would have been around 76, 77. The 70s was an amazing time for exploration, and then then AIDS came along. I'd still be living communally with gay men if it hadn't been for AIDS. 
which was nobody's fault, but it was still pretty sad and pretty tragic. Yeah. Uh-huh. And of course, we as sexually active folks um, were in the front lines of dying. I'm very lucky I didn't get it myself. I love the the teaching that was there for you around power and equality. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just I'm kind of thinking of it as another layer of your journey of the psychedelic moment, the click coming out 73. And then there's this other moment. And it sounded like that was also had some kind of influence in terms of what became possible for you and your imagination around sex, that, mm-hmm. that it didn't have to have a, um, it could have equality, more equality to it than you'd previously recognized. Yes. Yeah. And that, that was, that was also part of my responsibility to learn. And so how did you learn that and how did you find that and how did you create that? Well, once again, you see, if I was playing with somebody, particularly maybe somebody of the opposite gender who was um, not familiar with this sort of thing, and I decided that I had a good idea about how to run the fuck, uh, sometimes they would get quite alarmed. This this brings up the, uh, getting closer to consent here a little bit, like involving, yeah. Yeah. I've been teaching, I have, this is my... (laughs) my retirement project. (laughs) Uh, I developed a series of classes called navigating consent and you can find them. You can find our website online and it's still happening. What's that website? It's uh, navigating hyphen consent.com. And uh, uh, there's, they're basically two series of six classes. Each one is about surviving and one is about um, transgressing. I had worked with a lot of survivors over the years and for many years. And uh, um, now we're hearing about working with trauma survivors and what that's like. And, you know, back in the early 80s, that was new, really new and very strange and wonderful. And I, I'm very pleased to have been able to be part of that wave. Uh, by that time, I'm a licensed therapist and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, to work with transgressors has been new to me. I have a partner I work with who has done a lot of that work um, with the Alive programs and with uh, um, with transgressors. And so that has been a very exciting to do. A whole new place to work, a whole new kind of work. I had worked with a few before, but not, not that many. And we had some people coming to the classes, uh, um, some people looking very seriously at um, if they did something at a play party that um, got them reprimanded, got them taken off the guest list or threatened to be removed from the guest list, they come to take our transgressor classes and uh, are, are kind of very, you know, very genuinely interested in learning. And we've gotten a lot of very positive feedback. We just got our 501c3. So when people transgress or they go through this, it, is it kind of like a restorative justice model of like learning about harm and consent and, and what, what, what happens there? Uh, it's, well, it's my model actually. So uh, <laughs> it is kind of like that. We use some uh, one restorative justice exercise. Uh, uh, certainly I've read about all of those things um, or many of them. Um, there certainly are some things I haven't read about lots being published now. Yeah. Um, uh, but the idea to me is to say, okay, so what are the emotional costs of making a change here? If I look at what I'm doing and what's not working, 
And this is, this is, you know, this is uh, for survivors. It's more about saying, how do I heal? How am I able to manage intimacy again after somebody has uh, trampled all over mine when I opened up to them? Uh Um, Then, uh, and for transgressors, it's like, well, what was I trying to do? What was this about? Uh, And so we work on figuring out what people's stories are, what their uh, where what their fantasies tell them? How did they get into this position? What might be a path to doing something different? We we're very participatory workshopy thing. We do tons of brainstorms and dyads and stuff like that. And uh, and it's helping right now. Yeah, and it's helping. It's yeah. that's what we're there for is to create some community resources. Mm-hmm. I say halfway between don't listen to that that silly victim and throw that villain off the edge of the planet. <laughs> uh, help me understand what you just said. Uh, so often uh, people who have been the victims of transgressions, yeah. the survivors of transgressions have been not believed, not yeah. listened to because Correct. that was convenient. The other side of that coin is that the minute we do listen, the urge is to throw the person who transgressed away. So if we've approached educating transgressors from the point of view is there's a human being here. Yeah. And I teach my team, I say, you know, we have to figure out in in teaching that we're going to be, we promise not to shame or blame anybody. No survivors, no transgressors. We're not into shame and blame. We're into trying to see the world from where they are and meet them where they are and let them and support them in getting to whatever the next place might be for them and choosing a place that might be useful for them. I don't even say better at this point. I just say, you know, we, we try to to present an awful lot of options in, in um, people who do role playing like BDSM know a lot about playing with power exchange between equals with consent. With consent. Right. So yes. to transgress means the opportunity for consent's been missed. And and so how are some ways in your experience as being a sexual educator, a therapist who've worked with, you know, all sorts of both sides of uh, a situation where it's gone poorly? How how do we know when consent is there? Like what are some like telltale signs and what are some ways that you know, you just tell people to be thinking about consent since we're talking about it? Well, uh, some of the language people are using is enthusiastic consent, which I kind of like. The etymology, if you look up the etymology of the word enthusiasm, yeah. you get entheos in the Greek, which really means infused with the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you are. Enthusiasm is divine. Uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, that's a nice way to look at it. In California, the language has become affirmative consent. Okay. Like legally? That's like the legal language? Yeah, the legal yeah. language. Uh-huh. Uh which means uh, that a person has actually said, yes, I want to do this. And in my book, I define consent as an active collaboration for the pleasure and well-being of all parties concerned, including some who may not be in the room. Interesting. Yeah, if somebody has a partner who might be might armed or... or displeased. <laughs> or displeased or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I do hope that um, no one is, this happens every year that people buy ethical slut copies for their, their partners on Valentine's Day. It's, a, <laughs> it's sometimes not a welcome gift. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, so that's, you know, yeah. and, and I don't want to see people hurt like that either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking on the way over here. This, I appreciate that. So I appreciate the definition and I do want to circle back and make sure we handled the 
question about freedom from sexism and if there was anything else you wanted to add to that, because I know you started talking about that a little bit, but just want to make sure that's complete. Um, do you have another question that we No, I don't. I just know that we talked about that in terms of sexual liberation. And you said it was a really big deal to have um, freedom from sexism. And then you talked about the model of the, you know, the play party, the gay sex moment where you saw two men having equal power in exchange. And I think that was kind of a tell around that part of freedom from sexism. It means that we have equal power here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I just kind of want to affirm that or come back and see if there's anything else in that territory that you think is really essential. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we have a lot of stories about being seduced. We also have a lot of stories, Beauty and the Beast is characteristic, um, about, uh, if you look at the fairy tales, you can see it all over the place, right? Uh, that where that goes, that's the old Cupid and Psyche story. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, uh, that, you know, you get kidnapped and eventually it all turns into love <laughs> somehow. Uh-huh. <laughs> somehow or you know cinderella you get tiny feet in these tiny shoes and then you're rescued um uh there's a whole lot of stories that go that women are damsels in distress and men rescue us and therefore that's the problem with that is that once you get rescued what happens once you are not in distress anymore yeah um, are you acceptable? I had one partner I met when I was very, very ill and physically ill and uh, struggling with uh, a lot of lung disease. And uh, uh, when I got better, all of a sudden I wasn't the right person anymore. <laughs> you were in distress. All that gallantry and I wasn't in distress anymore. It was like, oh, I was no longer hot. Not interesting. Uh-huh. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you see it a lot. Snow White, you know, sleeping. Yeah. Uh, for a thousand years or a hundred years or whatever it was. And, you know, um, all of these uh, damsel in distress rescuing white knights. And is that the only model? Is that the only way we're supposed to meet? Uh Uh, Can we meet in our power? Will people, I've heard too much of people using language like pussy whipped about talking about women who have power uh, I remember hearing a couple of guys I knew. I was totally shocked talking about a woman who um, was a professor at an art um, university, an art college, uh, and a, a well-known artist. And said every time she comes near me, I, 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 I imagine I can just see the scissors in her hand. Like the only reason she would be a good artist would be to make to, un, to emasculate him. I mean, give me a break. Mm. I remember one time I was playing bridge with four guys in a club and uh, this woman walked in that evidently they had all four dated it sometimes and they were bad-mouthing her, something awful. And I said, are you telling me that this woman is a crazy idiot because she got into bed with you? <laughs> Back at you. Huh? <laughs> they stopped talking about her. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's funny. I love that. But if you think about that for a minute, this is, this is the story. And, yeah. And, uh, so there's the Madonna horror myth. There's, yeah. the, you know, there's all these kinds of terrible myths about sexuality. 71 virgins. Sounds like an awful lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you be happier with people who actually knew what they were doing? <laughs> 
but we're supposed to be virgins over and over again, you know? Uh, I mean, this is, this is uh, none of this makes any sense whatsoever in terms of good sex and what it's going to look like and what enthusiastic, you know, quest for pleasure is going to look like. I'm just thinking about stories that we all have or fantasies that we all carry mm-hmm. or the way we even narrate our sexual experience, the way I narrate my sexual experience and how I see myself and how I see what's happening with my wife and, and our relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's also just the, the, the tension between stories and reality in themselves, whether they're white knight and damsel in distress or ends of fantasies and just speaking of fuck, I was listening to a book uh, the other day called uh, unfuck your brain by faith Harper. It's interesting, but she said something that I kind of knew, but she said it in a really interesting way, which is that our, our default mode is storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we're not like doing anything, we're, we're like generating stories. <laughs> so I, I've really been watching myself generate all my stories. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, oh, I'm just, I'm just cooking up stories. It's like part of the default mode of humanity is to generate stories. And so um, I'm tying that into what you're talking about with the storytelling and consent, because part of, my guess is part of being sexually liberated is being able to navigate one's stories consciously. Yes. Right. And mm-hmm. if you can't uh-huh. and you can't relate them to other people, yeah. you're setting yourself up for disappointment or some other kind of problem. Am I, am I, am I onto something? Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you're operating on a story, first of all, there's the one story problem, otherwise known as reductionism, Freud and Oedipus, right? Like everything should be reduced down to one basic story that is the yeah. only single truth. There are yeah. many, many truths. True. Michael Mead calls that the monomyth. And he yeah. talks about the hero's journey being a massive monomyth when there's other ways of understanding human development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate to think of Campbell as a reductionist because he opened up so much stuff for us. Uh, well, he I don't wasn't know that, really, I think. But yeah, the but it's been the way it's been taken can, in, the way which, it's been taken into society yeah. too. The hero right. of a thousand faces yeah, is, yeah. does have, I mean, he had, look at the title, a thousand faces. Yeah. yeah. And so, so the idea that we would respect our differences, that we would enjoy our differences, uh, that that would be, uh, I almost hate to say this, I had, uh, except it's the truth. During the early years of my, um, after that great revelation, when I was exploring my sexuality, I had a lot, a lot, a lot of men and women of um, African-American lovers and was a part of some communities. Um, I had a roommate, um, uh, little kids. We, our kids were all growing up together, this kind of thing. And uh, I learned so much. I was trying to be an outspoken woman. I had grew up in New England, a little Catholic girl, right? And uh, ladies were very quiet. You listened. But dear, how are you going to get a husband? Um it was that kind of thing. And, uh, and so, you know, and I was here, you know, being my loudmouth self and trying to be true to myself. And, uh, that was a place where everybody thought that was perfectly normal. It was normal to talk about, you know, to be very blunt about how you felt about things. It was normal to be outspoken. It was normal to be sexual. It was normal. I, I, uh, I found a sex that felt warm and loving and, 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 and happy and that wasn't fraught. It wasn't fraught with how do I look? It wasn't fraught with how am I doing? It was, it was just there. It was good stuff. And I was uh, 
that was the other major influence besides the gay people on me in my early years. That community was amazing for me. Mm-hmm. Such strong, such strength, such beauty, such creativity. It was mm-hmm. just, uh, just stunning. And I know that people will be all over it as, you know, I worry about how people think about any mention or, or, or of positive connections can be construed as some form of racism, but that's not where I'm at. Yeah. I'm saying that I got very positive things and, and raising my kid in this community. Everybody was used to being around kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was like utopia for me in a lot of ways. And, and I have a lot of privilege. I'm white and nobody, you know, insults me in the street in the same kind of way. I know that. Um, and at the same time, I I thought I was getting a great privilege being introduced to this culture, and I found a lot of the things that were answers for me and how was I going to be the kind of strong woman I wanted to be. I love seeing you just talk about it and the energy you have for it. Um, and it's one of the themes, I think, in, in conversations I had with you and then reading your book as well around the importance of just their subcultures and having exposure to different subcultures mm-hmm. can be really transformative when one grows up with a certain mindset or frame of mind. And so I'm hearing it in that spirit. Uh, yeah. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make sure that we talk about pleasure more and the importance of pleasure. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to leave that because, you know, that's the slut side of it. We've talked a little bit about the ethics and the journey around that and the consent. And and I and I feel that uh, I just, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think you got things to say there. I know you have much to say there. So I want to welcome um, why is pleasure so essential um, to value that in, in the human experience? Yeah, well, the question really is, why don't we? Uh, <laughs> year, many years ago, I was invited to speak at, um, I, I wrote an honors thesis for my bachelor's degree, and my, my teacher for that wanted me to speak to her freshman classes about sex, so I did. And I came in, and they were talking about the values of Athens and Sparta. Uh, and I introduced myself by saying, okay, so Athens and Sparta, where did, how do they value pleasure in those cultures? And despite Epicurus and, and the fact that the Stoics had an arm that was about pleasure, nobody really knew um, because nobody talks about pleasure in the history books or in the philosophy books. They talk about war a lot. Literature, um, conquest, right? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so we started talking about valuing pleasure and we got from there to, so if you go out on a date with somebody and you make out and it's great, you don't go all the way and you come home and you masturbate, and it feels really good because you're really excited. Isn't that pleasure? And I swear they all nodded and smiled. <laughs> 18 years old, most of them. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, but the thing is that it's, it's, it's curious that, you know, I know we, we started out with a lot of Puritans, but those aren't the only immigrants to the United States, for heaven's sakes. Uh, but that we don't value pleasure. We, we talk about work. We talk about striving and struggling. We talk about war. We talk about fighting. Uh, and we don't talk that much about the meaning of pleasure in our lives. And pleasure is what makes life worth living. We do things that are fun. We like going to roller coasters. We like, ro- we like being scared on a roller coaster, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like lots of things. It's interesting. And, but doing things for the sheer pleasure of them is, 
uh, is is considered sort of um, decadent somehow. And I just don't think that's right. I think that when we share pleasure, we're sharing something that really makes community. Uh, one of the things about play parties that are, I suppose, one of the controversial ends of sex-positive community mm-hmm. is that groups of people who get together somewhere to do, you know, engage in sex as play for the fun and the pleasure of it become communities. It's an interesting, and I did this with a bunch of people back in the early seventies in the sense that, Oh, let's see. So we want to go to a party and uh, let's, why don't we set up a pajama party for the kids and the kids will all be somewhere, and some people who don't want to go to the party will volunteer to uh, take care of the kids this time. So now the kids all know each other. They all play together. Mm-hmm. They have pajama parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always somebody's birthday. If you have enough kids around, it you know, it works. They make bake a cake, you know, buy a cake, who knows. But the, the idea that, uh, that we become a community, we start taking care of each other. In that community, in all those communities, periodically a party will be held as a benefit for somebody who is ill or has cancer or there's been a fire or an automobile accident. So-and-so needs help, so we're going to hold this party. And they, they sometimes ridiculous auctions for um, that would seem obscene in other, col- in other contexts. <laughs> <laughs> I get your drift. I get your drift. Uh, but for the fun of it, again, and to raise to raise some money for uh, poor Joe or Susie over there who's who's having a hard time in life. Yes. You're but, not going to find that auction at the PTA. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. won't find that auction at the PTA. You won't really. I don't think so. They if wouldn't I, hold if I, a bake sale for somebody. Who oh no, they out. would. But I thought you said there would be some auction items that would be were a little more risque or well, fun. a little yeah. more risque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You yep. deal with more risque things. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but the, the, so this is this is uh, this is part of the sharing of pleasure. Yeah. I remember playing. Um, I think about competitive things. Playing a lot of backgammon with a friend of mine, where we played for minutes of heart's desire. And that means what? Sorry, forgive uh, me. Uh, well, that was in the sexual request. So heart's desire is a euphemism for what you want in terms yeah, of pleasure. Yeah, what you want. What okay, you may yeah, want. what your heart's desire is. Yeah, yeah okay. I great. may want a massage. I yeah, may yeah. want oral sex. Right. I may want. Some very elaborate play, <laughs> role play, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget role playing uh, where um, Janet, my co-author, I wanted to do some tantra before we got into sex per se, right? Yeah. And, and to play per se. We couldn't figure it out till Janet volunteered. said, I got it. I'll be the corrupt guru and you be the innocent devotee. <laughs> it's like, yes, we have a role play. <laughs> Back to the storytelling. Like the storytelling is part of the eroticism in some way. Yeah, you know? yeah. You can play any story. Yeah. And it's a journey, really. It's yeah. a journey into a state of consciousness. Yeah. And you wrote a book called Radical Ecstasy about that, where yeah. where certain and this gets back, I don't know if you were finished with the Spartan side of the story, but Athenian Spartan kind of division of hard fought conquest and literate pleasure. Um well, I think that was just the point to saying that they don't talk, they don't, we don't teach them anything about how that culture, we don't know how that culture regarded pleasure because we don't teach it. Right. We don't write it in the history books. Yeah. And obviously you've had many lovers in your life and through that, the bonding and the community that comes through having been lovers or having been intimate in some way, like 
I'm just curious about the, those bonds and the journey. And, and I think maybe that's some of the critique of open relationships or polyamory that, that, that those bonds don't really last and it's just short term and it's maybe self-interested, but I'm, uh, yeah, just offering that up. Cause I know there's yeah. counterpoints. Okay. In the modern world, uh, we can expect more mobility in relationships much as we expect mobility in employment. We don't expect to grow up in a town that has a factory in it and work in the same factory all our lives. We expect that, you know, you can go get a better job somewhere else. You go do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, in relationships, we are now in a new world. We, we have a lot of ways we can make relationships and the children don't starve. So the old agrarian models of you're supposed to marry the son or daughter of the person who owns the farm next door and make a dynasty and, you know, make sure you feed your parents in their old age and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is, is the connection between sex and survival is very different now yeah. because we can have sex with lots of people and the children don't starve, you know, basically uh, it doesn't affect how safe we are in our physical way in the world. Um, there are other things that affect that, but having sex doesn't have a huge effect on it unless you want it to in some crazed way. Um, but so that's really important. Uh, we are free now to explore further than we were going. And I've gotten way away from your question. <laughs> That's fine. No, it's great. Um, but I had something I was trying to say. So go for it. you Keep remind going. me of the question? So, yeah, I was going towards um, the bonds and relationship and community. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I recently had an experience. This was before COVID. I had a major spine surgery, a huge surgery. And I took, I was a month in hospitals. And then I... Uh, the first two weeks I was in the hospital, I had six hours of surgery one day and three hours the next. And it took me a long time to recover from all that anesthesia. I was pretty delirious. I literally didn't know what was happening. At one point, they tell me I they would try. I was whimpering in pain and they, they tried to get me to push the button on the, the machine mm-hmm. to give myself a shot of an opiate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went... <laughs> I blew on it. <laughs> I like, did not know what I you just had. Yeah. So yeah, evidently now, my yeah. daughter and an ex of mine were, um, uh, were there and they said, we can't leave her alone. So for two weeks they took turns sleeping in my, my hospital room. A couple of other lovers came in and, and took nights. Uh, this was an ex of mine. It was someone I hadn't dated for a long time, three years. I've known her for 30 years. At the end of that time, I put out a request saying on a list I was on, does anybody have a spare room that I could rent for a month? It's in the city and doesn't have stairs because I I don't trust myself to manage the stairs at my house by myself or drive the amount of driving I have to do to get around. So I spent the next month with somebody I broke up with in 1979. Called me up and said, yeah, we have a guest room and... and uh, that house was used for a lot of community services, a group called Leather Quest meets there and so on and so forth. We call it the fairy cottage, a lot of radical fairies. And uh, so there was a lot of people I knew in and out of that house. It was a very supportive place. And I had a room there for a month and I could walk, practice walking around the neighborhood. And, and it was great. So this is somebody that I broke up with, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Amazing. And so if you say, there's no long-term commitment. Uh, I think that we need to develop a better way to break up, a more positive way to look at breakups. Uh, Kathy Labriola has broken a, written a book on breaking up. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's more about not breaking up, actually. Uh, I wrote an intro to it 
but I'd like to see uh, us really develop a ways of breaking up that aren't so hurtful and don't leave us wanting to never see each other again. Mm-hmm. I think that that has to be, not be the only script by which we separate. I mean, there are people, there was one person who was violent. I don't want to see that person again. You know, uh, I wouldn't feel physically safe. But by and large, I've done very well. I always maintain, if you're thinking about Athens and Sparta, that an army of exes cannot be defeated. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? And uh, but so the people who have stepped up often are people that I have dated in one way or another, either very little or you know they're the people who just stepped up and brought things when my life was really not working because I was too sick or something like that. There were people who showed up with amazing stuff, and a lot of them were my exes. And why not? So they're family to me. That's family, right? Right. And so that's the question that's emerging for me right now, and I hadn't really thought about, which is. What's the art that you've found to making that transition from being a lover with someone and then not, or yeah, tell me about that. I wish I knew time, I think is the biggest one. Okay. Um, more recently, the last person I broke up with um, <laughs> uh, is uh, at my instigation, we met um, once a month for dinner and sometimes a movie or, you know, whatever. We went and saw the Kinsey six one year. You have to do that sometime. Okay. Um, they're amazing. Um, And we kept doing that. And the next thing I knew, my partner, she had been wanting to have kids. And I had sort of offered to be a grandmother because I was a lot older and didn't think that, you know, didn't think I could do be a full-time parent. But if I was going to live with them, I would be. So they called me grandma. Mm -hmm. And and they do call me grandma because she invited me in. She had a generation ceremony, which her family, her parents came in from Chicago with the rabbi. Her mother made a chuppah. We had an amazing uh, uh, ceremony to bless the intention of this woman for having a sperm donor baby. And we, we took steps, we took stitches in the toilet that represented uh, blessings and contributions we wanted to make to this project. Mm-hmm. And I was present at the birth of both of her sons. They both call me Gamadasi. Mm-hmm. And so this is another way in which you can form positive relationships. When people break up, what I really recommend is to maybe a period of no contact is useful or helpful. It depends on how bad it got. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think if we broke up earlier and didn't fight so hard to keep it together that we might find more civilized ways to do it, then we don't have to misbehave quite so grotesquely in order to get out. <laughs> That's only sometimes. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's a possibility is one of the things that does happen. And mm. the idea that we just accept this is part of life, that this is, and relationships run their course these days. They end. There's sadness. There's loss. Yeah. And to attribute that and then to find some way to connect that feels safe enough. I'm fond of movies. You know, you go to a movie, they won't let you argue. <laughs> Uh, you go afterwards with coffee, you talk about the movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very safe. And you'd start a reestablishing connection in a, a new relationship. Esther, uh, Esther Perel, uh, I don't know how she pronounced her last Esther name. Esther Perel, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. she pronounces her first name Esther. Oh, does she? Esther, yeah. okay, cool. Uh, but anyway, yes, the marvelous author of Mating in Captivity yeah. uh, and The State of Affairs uh, says that uh, 
okay, so your old marriage has died. How do you want your new marriage to be? And that's the kind of thing we're looking at. Your old relationship has got to change now. And probably it won't include sex for a while. It may or may not have had a relationship that stayed sexual, as I've said, for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and others that didn't. I'm about to resume a sexual connection with somebody that I haven't, that I was dating 30 years ago. Uh, what I'm hearing then is just a dance. Each each particular situation has its own dance and its own nature. And it's something you just got to give some time to. Yeah, and if we it's accepted a it and worked through it and to understand that we own our feelings. And this is the... The thing about jealousy is the thing about, you know, when we leave a relationship, we're all about you did this and you did that and you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that and you did that, it hurt me, you did this, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And all of that may very well be true. Uh, the answers emotionally always are within us. I'm a therapist and I believe that very strongly. And they're always involving consciousness, as you said. Yeah. That if we become conscious of our emotions and if we can have that conversation saying, yeah, I felt really hurt when X, Y, Z happened. And how do I want to comfort myself? How do I want to recover from that hurt? How what will work? Um, do you mind one last story? No, are you? Re- I'm not even ready to end. I still okay. have like five more things in my head. Yeah. Okay, but I'll tell you a story <laughs> about that one. Uh, uh, I tell it every time in a group, and I'm famous for this story. When okay, we good. Do the classes. Okay. Uh, it's like imagine that you're the adult, and there's a little five year old kid who comes running and screaming. I have to get back from the mic for this. Okay. I skinned my knee. I fell. I skinned my knee. It's bleeding. And you know, do you say? Oh, shut up. It's not that bad. Come on. Really? Stop that screaming. Or do you say, come here, come here. You want to sit lap? Oh, honey, look at your knee. Oh, look. Yeah, you're right. It is bleeding. I bet that hurt. Was that scary? Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Here, let me give you a hug. You want a hug? Yeah. Let's have a nice hug. And, uh, and then I think that we need to go and let's go in the kitchen and we'll wash it nice and clean and make sure it doesn't get have any grot, any dirt in it or like that, make it nice. And then we'll get a bandage for it. You want one of those with the stars on it and uh, a cookie. I think this situation deserves a cookie. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) And if we could treat ourselves the way we would treat the little kid with the skid knee, I think we would be living in a much better culture. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. The self-compassion is uh, sometimes thin. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not taught. Yeah. Particularly around uh, unacceptable things like jealousy. You know, we know yeah. nobody wants to be in a jealous rage or a jealous, you know, state and, or insecure or these things that are more um, show our vulnerabilities. I get it. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But you think, uh, I know you uh, have obviously been through probably your own jealousies and, and uh, write about jealousy and how to deal with jealousy in the book. Um, what are just a few core things that you think, um, for any person in any relationship, any kind of relationship, working relationship, professional friendship, where jealousy can show up or, or in lovers or in couples or pairs, groups. Well, I wonder how we have enshrined sexual jealousy as meaning you care in a relationship. That I question a lot uh-huh. uh, because I found people who managed to live without it, you know, um, and, um, and I am one. I wonder why that's, enshrined as a sort of you're supposed to be jealous even hit songs like hey joe where are you going with that gun in your hand or i'd rather see you dead little girl than see you with another man Mm -hmm. yeah really 
Yeah, no, I was watching the Monterey Pop Festival. I was watching the thing about Jimi Hendrix, and I was listening to that song. I had the same feeling, you know, just, yeah, there, there is that, those, uh, those versions of jealousy. Yeah. But not everybody is at a level where there needs yeah, to be but, a, I mean, a violent rage. That yeah. is, I think the thing I noticed was I didn't notice the, the problem with that song when the Beatles made a hit out of it because it was a jaunty little dancing song. Mm-hmm. And I, one time I was sitting in a coffee shop, I listened to the lyrics and I said, oh, fuck what are they saying? (laughs) This is horrible. Uh, So, but we're told that we're supposed to be jealous in some strange way. And that although we're supposed to manage anger, we're supposed to manage sadness. We're supposed to manage competitions fairly. We're supposed to be good losers, you know, Mm -hmm. gracious winners, um, all that. Somehow we are not supposed to manage jealousy. So the first thing that's important about jealousy is to realize that you use the same skills to manage it that you use to manage anger and grief and all these other intense emotions that happen in the world. Basically, it's the same stuff. The second thing I think that's important is that jealousy is always a projection. I am feeling miserable because you are doing X, Y, Z with that person over there. So I'm taking my misery and I'm blaming it on you sharing pleasure with another person. And there's kind of a story in it, right? Of being left out or not being valued or something like that. Usually when I do a workshop on jealousy, I ask the room what jealousy looks like when they experience it. And I get a lot of different stories. Okay. Like Some what? people are territorial yeah. uh, and they know that. Some people just get blindingly angry. Some people get very sad. Some people get bad body image. Oh my God, I should have lost 25 pounds, you know. There's a huge range. I get different answers from all over the room about what jealousy is for each of those people. For me, it was a massive insecurity, mm-hmm. huge insecurity. And I've, I've mentioned this slightly, but uh, building a, a platform internal security that wasn't based on finding a man who was exclusively sexually interested in me, no matter that I fantasized about Rudolf Nureyev while we were fucking, by the way. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, Rudolph who, just to be clear. Nureyev, uh, he's, he was Sorry. the, the Baryshnikov of his age. Okay, yes. thank you. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. There's probably a new one by now. Um, but no matter, no matter, uh, the, the, that is a projection that we are saying, I have this intense feeling of discomfort in the presence of your pleasure with somebody else. And instead of saying, what's going on inside me? We say, why are you doing this to me? Well, there's no answer to that question because they aren't. We experience some emotions as if they were happening to us from the outside world. But the truth is that we generate them inside. And what might make one person painfully jealous won't another. It's like triggers. What might trigger one person doesn't necessarily trigger somebody else. Yeah. And uh, so there's very individual stuff. For me, finding out that my jealousy was based on insecurities, and I'd been told that the only security I could ever find was a husband who would be sexually interested only in me, uh, which was not even remotely related to what my life experience had been. Um, So I was saying, oh, this is a challenge. I have to build a platform of security that I own and operate. I mean, I can take good stuff from my friends. Yeah, I can learn good stuff about myself from my friends uh, and the people who care about me. But essentially, 
it's my choice to build up a sense of security and how I reinforce myself, how I take care of myself, how I open my heart to myself. And, uh, you know, any time I find myself lost in that, in some kind of you know, strife with somebody else, uh, and I go say, well, what happens if I open my heart to myself? I start being able to work my way through it and to find what I need to make my life better. Uh, in the book, we quote a woman, a friend of mine, who said when I interview I interviewed a lot of people. I interview a lot of people when we write books. And one of the things she said is when I feel jealous, I go say, I go look at myself and I say, Well, what is it that I want and what do I need more of in my life? And where can I get it? Some things I can get the same way. I can get comfort from my lover as long as I don't want to have it right while they're in the middle of fucking someone else. Well, it's kind of rude to call up on the phone and shriek <laughs> <laughs> at such times. Pardon me, may I have this dance? Yeah, yeah. Ethical, yeah. ethical sluts we are. Uh, but if, as long as you're willing to delay gratification, you can get it. I encourage people yeah. um, who are experimenting with a partner going out on their first date to have a date for dinner the next day or lunch or brunch or something on the, th- on the table that will be some pleasure they can share and a way to get together and talk about how they experience preferably in a restaurant where things are less likely to go off the rails. But um, to really make sure they know when is the next time they're going to have free time, especially if they have kids or something like that. Arrange the babysitter. Make sure that you have a space where you can get together and discuss how you feel. And maybe a restaurant that serves something really nice would be a good place to do it. So I think I heard you say that for this is like, if you have a primary partner and you have a new lover, like do you schedule the date with the primary lover after that, just to show their importance? Is that what you were to say? Yeah, you may, two things, actually, these are two separate things. One is just to get together as soon as is reasonable after this event has happened. It depends on whether people are staying overnight or coming home or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is to know when your next bet date with your partner is going to be. Uh, some people have reached a place in a nesting partnership, as it's sometimes called, or a life partnership, where sex is not the most important part of their partnership anymore. Regaining the passion that they might have had in the early years of their partnership is something that they may or may not choose to engage in. For some people, it becomes a way of focusing the light on the pleasure they could be sharing in possibly a positive way uh, and not hopefully not keep up with the Joneses or, but, uh, um, but to, to wake up some passion and find out that it's still possible after, you know, getting through three babyhoods or something. And uh, for other people, they may be very content with their nesting partnerships and really happy to have outside partners. Yeah. So, so it's up to them to decide or they may try and see how it works. Yeah, so this gets in the realm of open relationships or uh, multiple partners or uh-huh. polyamory, which yeah. we haven't really consciously like talked about. I go, you know, and this is kind of, you do this a lot. You've, you, you have a guide, basically the book's a guide of like how to do lots of things that allow more sexual liberation and pleasure in your life, mm-hmm. including having more than one partner. Yeah, and you may have a primary partner, you may not. There's a chapter called Sex in the Single Slut, you know, why not? And... uh and what that is like, what the responsibilities and the risks are in that situation, right? 
I mean, this is a very couple-centrist culture, so it's kind of hard to even talk outside of the couple as the centrally organizing thing. I have been single for about half of my adult life and partnered for about the other half. Okay. I tell you, when I am partnered, I wish to be single. I think about the joys of being single. When I'm single, I think about how you yearn for a partner. So there you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess yearning is something that has its own value in life. Um, but... Uh, uh, the there's all kinds of different structures people can have, but you don't get attached to the structure. Like my favorite were the people who organized a poly uh, uh, potluck brunch in the Boston area once a month. Their family consisted of four adults who were two gay men, one bisexual man, and one straight woman. The straight woman was the only non-slut in the lot. They were raising three children, engendered by guess who, and um, they had a wonderfully happy family. They went on for years. That was a great family. They, the adults outnumbered the children. That was very handy. <laughs> and, uh, everybody wanted to raise the kids. Everybody was enjoying putting a household together, and um, everybody had a, a sex life they were happy with, including the one woman who didn't want to have lots of partners. She could have if she wanted to. I don't know if she went on to decide that she wanted lots of partners. The children were young at the time. But um, they were kind of a role model of an amazing marriage. I know of another um, foursome who bought a house together. And uh, let's see, they've got two babies now who biologically have one mother and two different fathers. Say that one more time. Um, I'll, I'll tell you why. I was thinking about polygamy. I was thinking about like how I was just processing the idea of a three male adult, one woman family system. And just being like, that's so far from the range of what I've been exposed to. But then I was going towards, well, yeah, the Mormon, they have the polygamy and there's polygamy, but it was, it's okay if it's just one man and lots of women, this like the own little bias of like cultural images around that and being like, yeah, there's other models of cultures who are doing all sorts of different kinds of polygamy. And like, yeah, just I'm presencing yeah. that. A right? while ago, a, a, a reporter from Slate, is that? The- yeah, there's a, a website yeah, called Slate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, invited me to have an interview about triads. And it turns out that in his book, a triad was a man with two women. And he hadn't really considered all the other possible configurations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's where he's coming from. (laughs) He was horrified when I started talking about it's kind of different this way, you know, and that way. You'd be surprised what I've experienced. (laughs) <laughs> and he was like, that wasn't what I came here to talk about. <laughs> well, now we know what your fantasy is. You right, know? Uh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. But his fantasy. Uh, yeah. But the, the, <laughs> the people put a lot of emphasis on the structures. People have come up with interesting structures. But a lot, of, a lot of the structures kind of flow. I mean, in some of the larger groups that you could think of as a group marriage, I was once member of a large extended family that was part of the Society for Creative Anachronism, ran all the games at the Ren Fair. And um, you know these people, they went to science fiction conventions, right? Half of them wrote science fiction. They're the classic poly groups that have been around forever. Um, okay. And, uh, and I was a member of that group. There were about 30 of us, mostly in the East Bay. And um, people came and went. We didn't have a structure per se. Some people would show up dating somebody and then they might become a long-term member of the group or they might not. 
as I said before, having your children play with each other is, is, is the way, you know, you have to learn to do a better job of breaking up with people when a relationship ends because you can't rip your children out of their family. And, uh, or at least you shouldn't. And so we, we had to learn to be more civilized about our breakups. We couldn't split the community and say, well, if you talk to his friends, then you're not my friend. Mm-hmm. How could you? you know, none of that. That doesn't work. So, so it can be very fluid. That was an extremely fluid group. And Is there, in that kind of uncertainty of fluidity about things moving, change and stuff, and, you know, this is the season of stress, and I, I feel so much we're talking about stress indirectly here with the different demands and pressures <laughs> of, you know, sexual conceptions, stories, fantasies, what works, what doesn't work, partnering, what we like, pleasure, denial of pleasure. It's all, it's all close to me, but I'm, I'm curious about in the fluid environment and the drift and the change, if there are certain kind of stresses that are there, which are both educational, which I think you said, like we don't just get to be immature about this. We actually have to hold a, a bigger sense of purpose about this mm-hmm. breakup in terms of there's a younger generation here. We have a responsibility to them and how we behave. I think you're saying that. Yeah. Okay. But just in terms of the stress of just fluidity of like, as you know, this couple, maybe now they're together. Now they're not things, the way things move around, versus, you know, so my, my wife and I, you know, we've been together 25 years now almost. So that's one of the variables that you need to know about yourself, which is how comfortable you are with change and with ambiguity in general. The uh, many people in poly will develop, we don't have a good name for this, but they will develop a partnership, a second partnership that goes on for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, the quad that I was talking about is like that. They started out as one a man and a woman who were married, and then each of those developed a long-term lover, and now all four of them have a house and two babies. And that's a long-term, very stable arrangement. And they have chosen their partners for stability. If you're going to invite a new partner into your house, you can't be very casual about it, you know? I mean, if your kids are in your house, you have to have a a reasonable thing. Now, there are people who try to keep this secret from the children, which I never did, so I don't know how that works. But it's a difficult secret to keep. It really is. And how you relate to the... Now, a lot of um, mainstream, perhaps, people who move into this field are very surprised to learn that they have a closet. What do you do with your church? What do you do with the PTA? Does your outside partner get to come to the PTA meetings? Um, what if the what if very concerned a- about something? <laughs> what if they're the right person to come? You know, uh, remember Tilda Swinton at the Oscars? I don't recall that. Sorry, she was nominated for best supporting actress. It was a very small part. She didn't expect to get it. So at the Oscar celebration, when her Oscar was announced, she was there with her lover, and her husband was at home with the kids watching it on television. <laughs> by everybody's consent great you know and uh she didn't expect to win it that was the surprising part but it was kind of this is a few years about 10 years ago and it was all over the place and she's one of the out of the closet people but clearly she has uh in her relationship the structure is that it's uh, is such that that lover is well known and accepted enough to be taken to the oscars <laughs> Yeah, as, as we're kind of coursing through this, I keep reminding myself that one of the things I'm thinking about is stability and the story of children and when you have yeah, a fluid yeah. community and 
you know, it's so easy for me or to imagine projecting and stories about, oh, well, there's not the stability for kids or what are the choices there and how's that handled? This comes back to the ethical part of it, which I, you're, yeah. I'm, you're I, very clear about. I just want to finish my point here real quick. And then, um, but then I'm just thinking about other like, you know, normal pair bonded couples and the chaos and the kind of instability. <laughs> it's like, it's like, no, everybody has the opportunity to be really unstable and unethical and out of bounds or not do well by their next generation. Yeah. And this is not to make it about monogamy or not monogamy pair bonding is, is kind of a, is, is an easy thing that I think people fall towards. And I can see in my own mind, I'm like, no, check it, Jeff, check it. You don't have to just assume that there's going to be more or less stability in any particular format. Yeah, this is true. This is absolutely true. One of my, um, somebody that was a client of mine, uh, was afraid that their eight-year-old daughter would be freaked out if they divorced and separated, which they needed to do. And uh, when they finally did it, she said, oh, then I'll have two bedrooms. Can I have mine pink? And then it turned out that she was the only little girl in her class at school who had never been through a divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, will I get a stepmother? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she found belonging. Yeah, she found Susie has belonging. a great yeah. stepmother. Yeah. So or um, I just heard the story the other day of a, a relationship of someone who suddenly just brought in a new partner, you know, pair bonded, uh, heterosexual couple, uh, divorce situation. And all of a sudden there's a new woman in the family and the kids came away from a weekend and they come back and it's like, there it is, right? All of a sudden there's a new parent. And it's like, that's kind of pretty unstable, yeah. right? Like there's not a lot of communication or consciousness going around there. Yeah. This is yeah. why keeping things secret from children is a mistake. Um, they can handle the truth. They don't have to have secrets. Mm-hmm. And so you don't suddenly wind up popping someone in on them that they didn't know. Do we really believe that stepmother in this case just had never been somewhere in the shadows before this adventure, before this separation or divorce happened? Yeah. Been around for a while. Uh, and that was the big secret. If there hadn't been a big secret, she would have already known these kids. She would have babysat for them while the primary couple went out for their anniversary dinner. So let, let's talk about that a little bit more in terms of secrets. And it's, it's there. We're right here. I wasn't thinking about going towards it. But since we're here, there is the, the social organization and the social response and the obligation around. Sometimes you're talking about being closeted or people have an extra relationship that the public doesn't know about or is not well known. And you kind of keep certain mm-hmm. things private. Sometimes you don't. And there's all these variations around that. But just to tackle the issue of children and it, since you brought it in, in terms of secrecy, is there a developmental place in your mind where you... Say, you know what, developmentally, we frame it this way or we don't frame it that way in terms of like from the beginning, you're like, oh, daddy has a lover and he's a guy, you know, and and that's how we roll around here. You just start honestly from the beginning. Yeah. Um, If you have young children um, or any children for that matter, but particularly young children, um, outside partners, new partners need to be okay with that because they can't simply ignore the children. They have to, they're going to have to develop their friendships with the children, their connections with the children. And, uh, you know, if you don't respect everybody in the household, then you can't be a member of the household. And so if there's, if there are children around, it's kind of a requirement. I mean, I have been poly since my, since with a young child. So I know this, um, yeah. uh, what'll happen with the very young children is they can't figure out why this new person who came, a new person is an interesting new adult, right? Oh, look at that. We got a new one. And, uh, uh, 
And they get very curious about that person. And if the person does not communicate with them and tries to avoid them, they will get very pokey because they they expect to know about that person and they don't like not knowing and they want that person to talk with them. And if that person won't talk with them, they get really, really out of control. It is also true that um, babies growing up in um, communal situations uh, don't show stranger fear at eight to 10 months. They don't quite know what a stranger is. They're capable of remembering about um, somewhere around. I had heard that 43 was a, a sort of a, median number of a primitive village or a primitive tribe. What was number 43? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that they capable of knowing and identifying about that many people. Yeah. They are kind of like even extremely young kids, even babies are kind of like puppies. You go to somebody's house, they have a new puppy. You play with the puppy, right? You come back six months later and the puppy seems to recognize you. Mm. Funny about that. Mm -hmm. Well, they do. And the babies are like that too. They, they really recognize people very, very strongly. And um, from a very young age, they're capable of managing quite a large number of people. Mm-hmm. Children were not raised by couples. Yeah, no, village, right? I mean, right, village, right? Yeah. yeah, farms were a lot of work. Mom and dad were able-bodied people who were out there working. They were raised by grand, by the elder, surviving older elders. Si- or older siblings. And older siblings mm-hmm. and um, whoever was around who could. I think that's still true that most of child rearing today happens by older uh, siblings, particularly older sisters. In larger families. Mm-hmm. You know, when yeah. we have our one yeah. or two kids, that doesn't yeah. quite work out like yeah. that. Right. But there is a, a sense, adults are a resource to children. And if the adults in the community are all willing to be a resource for the children, the children will figure out right away who will throw a ball for them endlessly and whatever, just like a dog. You know, they will figure it out. Dogs and children have a lot in common. Um, but it's not an abnormal way. It seems normal to them. And I don't think that, I think that in some ways they are better equipped to, to, to deal with a more mobile society. As long as I think the research around is basically as long as you probably know this being a therapist too, as long as there is stability and a stress buffering and a primary one or two parents who are there full on, kids are pretty resilient and they have some positive childhood experiences. Even if those parents change. Yeah. As long as they have stable people. Mm. Now I ask people who grew up to tell me that their parents were, for instance, alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I asked them how old they were when they figured out that something was wrong and that it was had to do with the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Universally, they, they say it's somewhere around 12 or 13. So that meant they spent their whole childhoods wondering what made mommy or daddy or both of them different and not knowing what it was that was affecting their how they felt and how they acted. That's dreadful. I mean, that's really it's a long scary. Time. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time. A long time, of, a whole development of, of a kid yeah. in, in a family like that. And so there's, you know, there's those kinds of things that are real. If you have a larger spread of adults, the kids have more resources. That's true. And one unres- one poorly resourced person doesn't have such such a huge effect because the kids have alter- alternatives. Yeah, the distortion, right? The Yeah, they, know, they have other people they can relate to who don't person. get drunk every night. You know? Yes. I mean, how many people have had aunts or uncles or grandparents or somebody else help or, buffer that when somebody else couldn't? For yeah, sure. right. Right. Yeah, no, I get that. I really do get that. Um, I want to, I think I want to come towards a close. And I want to come towards a question that's showing up for me now. And I think it's, it, uh, and it ties into the issue of stress. Mm-hmm. As you know, I think, you know, I'm really keen on matters of stress and how stress works for us in our lives and how we can work for it, how we can work with it. 
And um, one of the things that's uh, really clear to me about stress is we can get into threat psychology, right? We get a certain psychology that's there, that's we behave in very defensive, protective manners of, you know, us versus them thinking or outsiders or unsafe situations or harm or violence and or danger, real danger or or not. We bring a threat situation when we don't need it. Right. We've, we're afraid of things and we bring fear into a bunch of territory. We don't need it. And on the other side is a, a psychology of opportunity where we can see possibility in life and we can move forward and we can um, embrace things, find adversity to be useful, meet up to the task, those kind of things. Right. So in the world of relationships and in the world of <sighs> adventures of, let's say, uh, alternative uh I don't even know what the right word is. You probably have a better language for it, but uh, non-traditional images of relationship, mm-hmm, sexual mm-hmm. And, and partnership and lovers and all that. We've been talking about how, where's the place for threat psychology? Cause it seems to me that you can't really do this from a highly threatened state, but you can't also not perceive where danger is in one's environment. And you can't be naive about, harm or like you said the, that they have to kind of check people who are coming to these parties and you have to kind of like hold the possibility of both i think it's always a big mistake to assume a threat is an opportunity when it's not let me say that one more time i always think it's a challenge to accurately diagnose where is the opportunity in a situation and where a threat is in a situation or where a danger lies so uh, that's kind of coming up in my mind as a kind of a stress question like put it to a stress test and so how do you navigate matters of danger and risk and, and unsafety. And, and also knowing that you can't, from my perspective, you can't totally abandon that side of humanity. You have to be attuned to your environment and aware for, for your safety, but also you can't hold on to that. You need to be open enough to be in trusting relationships where you can have rapport, where you can trust people sexually and with each other. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but oh, you are making a lot okay. of sense. Okay, okay. Yeah. Tell me. So I'll tell you, I'm a person who had a violent father. And you know this from the poetry classes. Uh, so I have triggers, all kinds of triggers. I'm very educated about them now, by now, all these years. But um, it was hard when I was young. When I was a young adult, it was very difficult. And at the same time, turning to your resources are very important. I, I specialize in, as a therapist in working with trauma survivors one question I always ask is, what were the resources that were available in your environment? Who was there that was alternative to the terrible stuff you're telling me that was going on? And so we look at that, too, to find that there were places. And sometimes there was, you know, a teacher, a minister, a scout leader, who knows? Uh, there were other adults who told them this. They become very precious. Uh, sometimes a grandmother would say, you know, I don't like the way your father is treating you. Somebody has just told me it's not okay. Remember that children, if you limit their, if you limit their environment to two adults, everything that those adults do is what the kids think is normal. For better and worse. Yeah. For better or for worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah they think that's normal. Uh, if you, nurture an extended family. We're so mobile with the job thing I spoke about earlier, right? That we don't form the kind of extended family contacts that we used to when we used to live always in the same little town that we were born in, you know, or within 50 miles of it or something. So to make an extended family is part of what is important about 
uh, polyamory and a polyamorous uh-huh. lifestyle. Yeah, no, it makes sense from is, that angle how pleasure can help be part of the recovery process yeah. of building continuity yeah. and community and connectedness. And, yeah. and the kids get extra resources. We've One of the things we found about kids in polyamorous communities is that uh, I remember one 13-year-old boy who showed up on my doorstep. Very quiet he was. The kids who were in the house were like five and two. And he went around taking care of the kids. He helped in the kitchen. He was there for about three days. I called his mother. I said, he's here. He's safe. It's okay. I don't know what he wants yet. Um, And um, finally he sat down with me one evening and said, do you think it's okay if I'm bisexual? And I was like, okay. Teenagers will pick confidants who are not their parents. Often they are their parents' lovers. I can't tell you how many first visits to Planned Parenthood were escorted by a parent's lover. They were chosen by the teenager. Because teenagers find sometimes their parents are a little too fraught with all that authority and stuff like that, that they need somebody that has a little bit more distant to assist them into adulthood and to answer their questions and to work with them. And so that's another thing that we don't give them in conventional cultures we don't give them those extra adults where when they start being teenagers and they start wondering how the world works and how their world is going to work that they have somebody they can bounce ideas off of who isn't going to go what do you mean you're not going to go to college (laughs) 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 you're going to college (laughs) Uh Uh, because that's what the parent's job is to do you see yeah, yeah. The yeah. parent's job is to strongly encourage college. Yeah, yeah. And somebody who is not a parent doesn't have to do that. They're freer. Yeah. And so the 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 kids have a, a resource that's kind of like a small village. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of people that they can connect to, that yeah. they know how to connect to. And they choose often who they make the connections with, who they like and who yeah. they care about and who they don't like. It's it's a different thing but chances are i think it has its history in when we lived in huge in agrarian cultures in huge extended families or when we lived in tiny villages as a tribe mm-hmm. where everybody was a member of the same family yeah the deep hunter gatherer ancestral world yeah right it's exactly pretty powerful stuff exactly i think i also got an answer from you that yeah the 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 threat detection like you don't you, just because you're in a different shape or format doesn't mean that it gets to turn off. Actually, you get to relate with both the the capacity for threat psychology more deeply, kind of like what I said at the outset of the interview where it's human development. It's like all this stuff is conscious human development. I become a more full, accountable human who can include the need and power of pleasure in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about threat... I'm thinking of, there's a statistic, you know, that the situations that our police officers are involved in that most often result in injuries to the police officer are domestic violence calls. So if you think a kid is safer in a home that consists of mommy, daddy, and the kids, uh, you don't know where the threat lives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The threat may very well live right there. Uh, This is, uh, again, the mobility is in it's easier to I was aware when I left that I could if I had been it was during the war in Vietnam and I thought my god if I'd been a Vietnamese woman in this position I couldn't leave 
where my choices would have been very, very different. And uh, so that idea to me of an extended, stable group of people is, um, is safer, is definitely safer and more likely to eliminate threat. Um, it's interesting, the Japanese word for outlaw is uh, murahachibu, it means outside the walls of the town. Outlaw meant you were sent out of the woods and you probably wouldn't survive the winter. You were sent out of where the people were. You know, you'd probably starve. And so the, the membership in the group was that crucial eventually. That was what meant that you had to behave properly. You couldn't just lose your temper and hit people. Because if you kept at it and you wouldn't stop, sooner or later you would be told to leave. And nobody would put up with it. So, you know, finding where the threat is, if we insist that people fit into this model with very few adults present to witness what's going on with the kids, the kids are not safer. I mean, if they're lucky and they have parents who are safe, yeah. Yeah. My parents were these very respectable people. I didn't grow up in any slum. I grew up in a prep school town in New England. <laughs> That's where I was not safe. Wow. I hear you. Thank you for, for bringing that part of your journey in. Yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling fairly complete. How about you? Okay. What about you? You got anything else you want to close out with? Uh, no, just that thank you for doing this interview. And I'd love to, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that in my lifetime I have seen such changes about this and that I got to, I got to write that book, The Ethical Slut. I got to write it. And, Three uh, times. Yeah, three times, three editions, <laughs> because um, people are curious and they're interested in hearing about this, and there's a larger and larger. We sell more copies of that book every year. That's very unusual in book sales. That's amazing. We just keep selling more copies of it, yeah. and I feel very blessed to have been able to write something that so many people have found useful or helpful in their lives. And uh Partly because back in 1969, a lot of people told me I was crazy, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, um, uh, so time has really borne out that your that first vision that you had around the vision around the oh, life. Oh, all the people around the fire. Yeah. Campfire at night in the jungle. Yeah. 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 And you had a feeling that you needed something, right? What was that feeling you told me? I needed to get my security from the community. There you not go. Not from one partner uh, who was supposed to give me everything but from having a community. Um, that was where I would be safe. That was where my child would be safe. That was where um, where I could grow and be and have the freedom to be the person I wanted to be and raise my kid to be the person, to be free to be whoever they want to be. Yeah. And that only did it work out for you. Yeah. it uh, You were able to really make a fantastic contribution to the conversation time and time again with your all your books, but particularly this one that's, continuing to still sell. It's so amazing. When I thought about the third edition, I was like, you know, a third edition of a book says a lot about commitment, commitment to the conversation, not just like a one-off, but so I really applaud you and Janet for sticking in there and just continuing to foster how to think about these matters of relationship and super great to talk with you for these past two hours and just have this long extended oh, conversation and get to, too. Oh, great, great to get to know you. And so I appreciate your life journey. And I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Dossie. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the How Humans Work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community. 
And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.